glad to have back on the podcast John Ward. John is uh, a senior news journalist correspondent for Yahoo News. Uh, John has covered widely presidential politics for the last number of years. He is out with a brand new book that is fascinating. If you know me at all, you know how much I love presidential politics. And so his new book was right up my alley. It is a book that focuses on the 1980 Democratic primary between Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter and takes a fascinating deep dive into both of their lives, but how they sort of intersected in 1980 and what that meant for them personally, but also for the country. One of the things that John does in this book that I think biographers do well is that he really humanizes his subjects. He takes them out of the sort of the political spotlight where they're cartoon characters and he and he really peels back the curtain and shows us their life in a way that we may not have seen before. So you may or may not agree with the politics of the people he covers. I certainly don't agree with uh, Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter on much in terms of politics, but it is good to, to read about the stories of people uh, who have been in positions of power uh, in our country. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with John Ward. John, thanks for joining me, man. Great to be with you, Dan. Thank you for having me. So last time I had you on, we talked about the media, talked about journalism, your pathway, which is very interesting. And I encourage people to actually go back and listen to those. But I actually want to have you on to talk specifically about your new book, which focuses on an interesting part of uh, presidential history, which I'm always fascinated by. I just love presidential history. Uh, But the 1980 Democratic primary between Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy. So my first thought was, what piqued your interest on this? Uh, You know, I I like history as well. I was also looking for a good story that no one had really told in a way that would be a good book. And I just sort of happened to stumble across this story in conversation with some people several years ago. They were talking about one particular incident, which is uh, actually featured on the front cover of the book. It's the final night of the 1980 Democratic Convention. It's in Madison Square Garden. And as I was talking to these people, these two Democrats at a meeting several years ago, they started describing how Jimmy Carter, the president, was chasing Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, around the stage. Kennedy was drunk and Carter was embarrassed and humiliated in front of the whole country on live TV. I didn't really know much about this story. I don't think I, I, I don't think I'd ever heard it before, hmm. and it kind of blew my mind. And then I was still sort of absorbing and digesting this, that story. And I, I walked into another room, and ran into another Democratic operative who had worked for Carter and later worked for Obama, who talked about the ways in which the 1980 Democratic primary between Kennedy and Carter divided. The Democrats for you know many many years and was sort of a schism running through the party for the entire twelve years that they were out of power in the White House between Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, both Southerners by the way, and so I, I just felt like it was a story that hadn't been done before, and that was a conclusion I reached after you know doing some research, looking at the literature, looking at the published books. There really wasn't anybody who had told this story before, so I just thought what a what a huge opportunity. I think it's interesting that you focus on this particular uh, moment in history. If you were to ask a lot of people, they they might not even have remembered that there was a primary. And I think you kind of brought this to light in one sense. One of the things I really like what you do in this 
is you really humanize your subject. So Kennedy and Carter, particularly Kennedy, because I think at times, especially in the modern era where, you know, politicians just sort of come become these avatars that aren't as human. And, and you really kind of dug into both their backgrounds, some of the things that motivated them to do the things that they that they do. Obviously, that was intentional. Yes, 100%. Um, there's a quote that I that I have at the very beginning of the book from, I just stumbled across it, uh, and it's from um, Karl Barth, and, he, and it says, history is made up of living men whose work is handed over defenseless to our understanding and appreciation upon their death. Precisely because of this, they have a claim on our courtesy, a claim that their own concerns should be heard and that they should not be used simply as a means to our ends. And you're right. I see a lot of history, I guess, used these days, exploited for just simply partisan uh, or political purposes. That's not the purpose of history. The purpose of history is to increase our wisdom, not to be used as a weapon. And um, that quote talks about having understanding and appreciation. And that doesn't discount the need for criticism. I've said publicly on national public radio that I think Ted Kennedy should have gone to jail for Chappaqu- for his actions the night of uh, in, in 1969 at Chappaquiddick. But it also, uh, you know, just because we're, we're critical and clear-eyed doesn't mean that we can't also be empathetic and understanding um, and appreciative. And I think there are things to appreciate about Ted. Yeah, for me, I think Kennedy and Carter, but I feel like Carter has been a little bit more humanized just by his own personality and the way he's been sort of out in public and, you know, his post-presidency kind of serving and being a leader that way. With Kennedy, you really made it possible for us to step back. And regardless of whether you agree with his political positions or not, or condone all of his behavior, to understand kind of the the things that were going on in his life that might serve as, you know, factors and reasons why, I mean, when you step back and think about it, here's a guy who lost his brother in World War II. His other brother becomes president, and then he gets assassinated, and then his other brother running for president assassinated his sister does and like when you yeah. the way that you put all that together and just think like how does a person cope with all of that people right. choose different ways to cope with their with their pain uh, i thought that was really a important way to look at him yeah thanks and um a couple thoughts on that i mean you know one is that i think for our generation i'm 42 i think you're I'm 41. About the same age. Yeah. Um, There were a lot of, I mean, the generation, our parents' generation who kind of grew up with the Kennedys or were adults when they were in in power, I mean, JFK in particular, or came of age during that time. Like, there's there's a much greater, I think, understanding of the Kennedy story among that generation. I think among our generation and those younger than us, there's, there's not because there's just not the same connection. So they're, the Kennedys are not as big of, an, of a thing for people our age. And so there needs to be a, uh, you know, a reminder, a retelling of their story in some ways. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me about uh, the way Kennedy is perceived is that when I first got the idea for the book, this was 2013, and he had Teddy Kennedy had died just four years earlier, and I was talking to people just like two months after Barack Obama had been reelected, 
And of course, you know, one of Ted Kennedy's final acts of his political career was to endorse Obama over Hillary Clinton. Uh, and that endorsement was a huge development in the 2008 presidential race. So in 2013, there was still quite a sheen on Ted Kennedy's legacy. He was still so recently deceased that the most you know, recent memories of him were the ones that all occurred right after his passing, which is the time when people are remembered most positively. I mean, mm-hmm. history time allows things to sort of even out. And you're starting to see that now with the movie about Chappaquiddick that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Things are sort of rebalancing a little bit. But, you know, when I was, when I first had that conversation about Ted Kennedy on that, on that stage, drunk and humiliating Jim, Jimmy Carter, that was an aspect of Jimmy, of Ted Kennedy that I wasn't really all that familiar with because I had only covered him in his final decade as a senator in my days as a reporter on Capitol Hill. So I was not as familiar with uh, all of the stories from like Michael Kelly's GQ article about him and Chris Dodd, you know, having, having sex in French restaurants with uh, random women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot in his life. And one of the things that I think that's, you know, really important is that you, you do what I think good biographers do is that you, you know, you don't spend the whole time demonizing him or trying to make a point, demonizing his or, or Carter for that matter. But you also don't um, have hagiography where you just sort of portray them as perfect. I think you do cover some of the, you know, sordid parts of Ted Kennedy's life, you cover even with Jimmy Carter, even though he obviously was a very moral man, you know, anger issues and pettiness that sometimes he could devolve into. And and, you well, know, and, and also the the issue of race in his election as governor. I think yeah. that's the the biggest black mark on his on his yeah, you're right. life story and career is the way that he yeah. appealed to racist and white supremacist sentiment mm-hmm. in Georgia in nineteen seventy. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things, you know, as a Christian reading the book. In reading any biography, you know, it, it reminds us just that even the best of us are flawed, right? That if any of us ever got to be famous enough to have someone write a biography about us, which is rare, that there would be those marks that are good and, and, and that are bad. I want to ask you a little bit about your process because I'm just curious. I mean, this, you know, writing a biography, and especially when you're kind of looking at two people in a singular moment, quite a bit of work and research. How long did it take you to to kind of work on it? What's, what's sort of your process in terms of doing research and all that? Well, uh, you know, as I said, I got the idea in 2013. Um, I spent quite a, quite a while doing the first tranche of research that, you know, led to the, the proposal. I worked with a, an agent here in D.C. who is our age as well, mm-hmm. uh, a woman named Bridget Wagner-Matzi, who mm-hmm. is absolutely fantastic. She... Held me to a high standard for the proposal. She, you know, asked me to put together basically a, a hundred-page proposal, which is much longer than your average proposal, because she wanted to basically demonstrate to prospective publishers that, you know, I could deliver the goods, and mm-hmm. she felt like that was the best way to do it. Um, and she helped me a ton through the process in terms of editing, much more I think than maybe your average agent would. But I, I can't remember exactly when we sold it, but um, after we sold it. There was quite a bit more work that had to be done. Um, a lot of that was kind of building out, researching, and writing the the first half 
of the book, which is kind of about each man's background and, and their path to power and how they kind of came up to the edge of the collision in 1980. I had done a lot of the work already on 1980 itself before that. And as far as research goes, I mean, there was uh, a lot of stuff, you know, the easiest stuff to get was just newspaper accounts. Um, I, I relied pretty heavily on the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then started going into the Atlanta Constitution archives um, mm-hmm. at the Library of Congress, uh, which you know, I, at the time I was living a couple blocks away from that. From that, so that was hugely convenient. I, I had a trip. I think I did two trips to the Carter Library in Atlanta. One trip to Kennedy Library in Boston. I would have done more there, but the, but a lot of almost all of Kennedy's um, documents are still under seal. I think they just unsealed a, a little bit of it. But it's a long process of making their way through all that stuff before they release it. And then I went to Nashville to look at the archives of um, TV, uh, the network TV uh, broadcast uh, for the convention. Mostly, you have to basically go there to look at that stuff uh, at the at, at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was one or two other trips. I did, and then there were interviews. Um, so well. talk about talk about writing history, you know, in a way that I think the best biographers that I read, and uh, and I think you did this well. Particularly, I was just amazed. Like you're a journalist and you're a good writer, but this is your first sort of crack at something like this. The best ones sort of get out of the way of the story and like just kind of let the story tell itself. But you know, you're having to sort of weave facts and and times and dates and all that stuff in order to actually tell a story that moves people along. How do you go about doing that? One thing that really helped was Bridget. Her guidance on the pacing was very helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm going to get to structure in a minute. But in terms of pacing, she was very uh, clear in her, in communicating that it was, it was important to go back and forth between skimming the surface of the waves at times where you skip over, a lot of you, you cover a lot of ground in a short period of time, and you're kind of hitting the the, the the tips of the waves there, right? And then picking moments to kind of slow down the replay and really take the reader into the nitty gritty of the moment and try to tell a scene moment by moment by moment. That idea of sort of alternating the pacing was very helpful to me in terms of. Uh, just the, the writing process. Um, and it was, so it then became a matter of figuring out where did I have research material to do that, you know, and, and trying to put that together. And as far as the structure went, I, I feel like I was really lucky to, to just sort of have this story. I, I do feel like it, a, a lot of times things fell into place really, really well. And you obviously, you have to, you have to back up and do a fair amount of outlining and just sort of 20,000 foot looking at the structure of the thing. But as I did so, the ways in which I could tell their stories alternating between the two of them, it became a, a device. You know, it's like you start out telling Carter's background and, and Kennedy's background. And from that point on, it was just a matter of figuring out how to keep doing that back and forth. And there were times where you just kind of had to take some stuff that um, chronologically happened after the thing you're talking about in chapter five, um, but put it in chapter four and vice versa. You know, we were kind of messing with the idea of time there a little bit. And that just takes 
you know, writing around it to, to make sure that it, that it works. But, um, it's, mm, that's, that's but yeah, that was, that was, the, those were the two big things, kind of the pacing and the structure of it, I think. Yeah, that's really good. I want to go back to the story a little bit. I mean, one of the things that is really, really amazing here about this presidential primary in 1980 was, first of all, how, how rare it is for a sitting president yeah. in the modern era to be primaried um, and, and potentially damaging to their re-election chances. So that w- that's an interesting thread. But the other thing is just kind of with these two personalities, Jimmy Carter, Ted Kennedy – a clash of almost two kinds of worlds where one is the the famous son and a famous family, sort of this Camelot family burdened with the expectation of being president. And then you have this sort of um, small town peanut farmer with, you know, no family connections and, and, and not all those advantages. And the clash of these two different worlds to me was just fascinating. Yeah. And I, I was, I, I was very intentional with the photo section in conveying this as well, because the very first page of the photo section sort of gives you a, an immediate uh, entry into what's happening early on in the book, which is the, the first page of the photos shows, I think the first photo is uh, Carter at age 10 or so. The photo quality is really bad. He's standing there with his mom and his younger sister. He has no shirt on. He's wearing like, beat up old jean shorts and uh, probably is not wearing shoes. And his mother, you know, is in a farm dress and they look like, it, it looks like it's a photo from the depression era, you know, series, uh, those famous photos that we've always seen. And that's because it was, it was during the depression that that photo was taken. Um, and then the photo below that is Ted Kennedy. He was the youngest of nine and he's in a photo with most of his brothers and sisters and his father. I don't think his mother's in that photo, but they're all in London. Uh, a couple of years after the photo of Carter was taken about the same age, as Carter in the photo above it. They're all dressed to the nines. The photo quality is impeccable and uh, it conveys all the wealth and privilege that they had. Um, and yeah, these were like alien worlds colliding. And it's funny because if you look at the backgrounds for these two guys and you were to project that forward into their politics into 1980, you would think that Carter would have been the populist candidate and Kennedy would have been sort of the establishment candidate arguing uh, in favor of the status quo in some respects or whatever uh, the establishment candidate would have been doing. But because Carter was the incumbent and Kennedy was the challenger, that was, I guess, one cause of it. But Kennedy really did run more of a populist campaign, appealing to the grassroots of the Democratic Party, appealing to a sense of needing to protect first and foremost from inflation, the working class, the working poor. Carter was much more of the status quo. I mean, in part, again, because he's the incumbent trying to argue that his last four years as president, you know, he's earned a second chance to, to get four more years. Um uh, so I, I think that's really interesting. I find the the chapter about the Law Day speech to be really fascinating in terms of mm-hmm. what might have happened with the Carter candidacy, if not for Watergate. Of course, if not for Watergate, he might not get elected because he represented sort of a a chance for redemption for the country. Mm, that's exactly right. And and I'm always fascinated by the what ifs of history. If there's no Watergate, there's probably no Carter. If there's no Chappaquiddick. You know, Kennedy probably doesn't wait till 1980 to run, right? And so then you no, probably not. Yeah, you, he probably runs against Nixon at some point. You might actually have a 
a second Kennedy presidency, perhaps, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty likely actually that at some point Teddy Kennedy would have run and won. I mean, certainly, it, certainly he would have probably almost certainly won in 1980 against Carter, if not for Chappaquiddick. That was the thing that I think really sunk him. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that happened that really hurt his chances. In particular, <laughs> counterintuitively, the hostage crisis made it incredibly mm-hmm. hard for Carter for Kennedy to get traction. But I think even with the hostage crisis, he was sort of always a paper tiger waiting to collapse in mm-hmm. 1980. Um, the polls in the fall of 79 showed Kennedy up, you know, two to one over Carter in the polls. But as soon as the hostage crisis happened and the mud interview happened, uh, of course, half the mud interview was about Chappaquiddick. But, you know, it's just really hard for Kennedy as he, as he campaigns around Iowa to connect with the Iowa voters. And I think a lot of that is due to people's perceptions of him around Chappaquiddick. And um, it's another big what if, you know, just around the question of can he beat Carter uh, without Chappaquiddick, I guess, um, because the hostage crisis did do a lot to rally the country and the Democratic Party around Jimmy Carter. But, but that that one incident really changed the course of his life. It, it really is interesting when you go, go back to that time period. How for a while it was just almost a given that people assumed Kennedy would beat him and and be the nominee. Right. And then how that whole thing flipped. I think there's a couple fascinating threads here too where. The burden of Kennedy to to be to finish what uh, his brothers couldn't do, what his father always wanted him to do, and kind of coming out a little bit in that mud interview of like, why actually, why actually do you want to be president? Maybe talk a little bit about the burden that he bore for his family that way. Yeah, I mean, the mud interview is famous because Roger Mudd of NBC um, or of CBS. At, later of NBC, um, Mudd asks Kennedy, why do you want to be president? And everybody remembers that Kennedy, the way that they describe it is that Kennedy could not answer the question, which is not really accurate. He answered the question in so many words. It was kind of a longer answer. The, the answer was sort of vanilla, not inspiring, not that specific, but it's kind of over-dramatized in people's telling as to how bad it was. But the thing that people saw in the answer, in its lack of inspiration, in its lack of specificity, was the sense that there was this two-sided ambivalence to Kennedy about the presidency. And on one side of the ambivalence was a sense of entitlement. uh, And on the other side of the ambivalence, was perhaps a sense of hesitation and the sense that he was being driven to do this by forces outside him without really wanting to do it himself, which is a huge theme of his entire life. As soon as uh, he graduated from law school at UVA after the 1960 election and his brother becoming president, he wanted to move west. Him and Joan, his first wife, wanted to move out west and kind of get away from the Kennedy family and start out on their own path. And, you know, that was the beginning, really, of his father, Joe P. Kennedy, telling him, you know, no, you can't do what you want. You got to do what I tell you to do, and that is get up to Massachusetts and uh, prepare to 
you know, take your brother's Senate seat. Um, and so he was thrust into this decades-long career as a senator, kind of against his own will. You know, did he want to be, I'm sure some part of him wanted to be president, but anytime you're in a political career that you didn't choose for yourself and you're being driven to run for the nation's highest office by such powerful forces of memory and uh, and sentimentality mm-hmm. and uh, your own family history, uh, it does raise questions about whether you're you're in it on your own volition. That was one interesting insight. I, I've read a lot of books on the Kennedys, and I knew about the father's sort of, you know, the, how much of a patriarch he was in that sense. But I did not know that Ted wanted to move west and sort of like breathe and start over. Yeah. That was fascinating. When it comes to Jimmy Carter, you, you do a lot of work on on him too, and one. One of the questions that you really dive into a lot is the kind of famous malaise speech in which he actually doesn't say the word malaise, but it kind of becomes famous for that. Maybe talk about how that sort of defined him in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us can think of Jimmy Carter and we probably maybe mentally see an image of him in the Oval Office giving that speech. Um, I don't remember if he was wearing a sweater during that speech. I don't think he was. Um, but that, you know, my mental image of Jimmy Carter still is like a, a sort of faded TV image of him. He's wearing a, like a, a, a sweater, a button up sweater. Um, and the Malay speech is kind of a, of a piece of that. It's this, it's this image of a, of a president who is soft spoken and kind of weak and ineffectual. And the Malay speech is probably our biggest symbolic representation of that because uh, it's him giving a speech in which he is describing the country in a time of crisis, but not do, really doing anything to inspire it, not really doing anything to uh, change the course of history, but instead uh, blaming the American people uh, for the problem. I don't really agree with that assessment of speech. Um, to me, again, there's a couple things that I came across in telling the story that I feel like history happens one way and then it gets described a different way and then remembered different from what actually happened just because that's what how people describe it. And the Malay speech, I think, falls into that category because it was received quite positively in the days afterwards. And when he fired his cabinet, that mm-hmm. changed the flavor and the tenor of everything. And that's why people remember the speech negatively. But I found in reading and watching the speech that it, I found it to be a, a, a very gutsy, mm-hmm. uh, not perfect by any means, but mm-hmm. a gutsy speech. Uh, and one in which, you know, our president talked about things that, that presidents generally don't, which is the emotional and spiritual uh, mm-hmm. psyche of the country and, and tried to call us to, to overcome a huge challenge. So it was sort of a turning, turning point, I guess, for Ted Kennedy. He claims that that's when he decided to run against Carter. But again, that might just be sort of convenient uh, rear view mirror, um, you know, myth making on his part. Hmm. I could I could go on for hours about this book. I really do want to encourage <laughs> everyone to go get this book, Camelot's and Kennedy versus Carter and the fight that broke the Democratic Party. Really a window into a fascinating part of our modern history. Last question, now that you've written one of these, uh, do you have the bug? Is there anything that you are looking at and saying, okay, what are some other stories I can tell? I would love to find another story like this that's historical in nature to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
feel like I've always had the bug. Writing mm-hmm. long form has always been what I've most loved to do as a journalist. Uh, writing a book did not disappoint me really in any way. I loved kind of every part of the process, maybe with the exception of having to reconcile two different systems of <laughs> yeah. of uh, endnotes uh, over the holidays like a year and a half ago. That was not fun. Um, <laughs> but everything else, I really enjoyed it. And I will say writing a book expanded so much of my perspective um, in a way that I think may has made me a much better journalist day to day. It's increased my historical perspective. It's deep in my my knowledge of American political history in a way that I think uh, has helped me to ask questions about our current politics that I don't feel like enough of us in journalism or politics are asking, you know, largely along the lines of uh, thinking about institutions and thinking institutionally. You know, following the footsteps of some really great minds like uh, Jonathan Rausch and mm-hmm. Yuval Levin, who are uh, both still writing about that. And I know Rausch has something come out, something coming out very mm-hmm. soon on that topic. Uh, an article, Yuval has something coming out on institutions. A book uh, later this year. Highly recommend everybody go read their their work. But uh, you know, I think as far as next books go, right now I'm thinking about writing something that's somewhat historical about my upbringing uh, in evangelical Christianity uh, coming out of the Jesus movement in the 70s. There, there's something, I think, in the idea of writing a book about growing up evangelical and tracing the, uh, the, the, the development of the evangelical movement from the 70s to the current moment. Mm. That'd be a fascinating book, and I'd, I'd love to read that. That That'd be fantastic. Well, John Ward, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it and uh, appreciate all your work and encourage people to uh, to buy this book and follow you. We'll put all the links uh, in the show notes page, but thanks, man. Thanks, man. I'm looking forward to uh, coming to the conference in October, I think, the ERLC conference. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.